do you have to be baptized to get into heaven? Let's go. Hello, I'm Thomas. And I'm Sam. And this is the Silent Planet Podcast. Today, um, we're going to talk about baptism. What does baptism mean? Uh, How does that relate to grace that God uh, gives all of his children, anybody who who comes to it and seeks it out? Um, Yeah, and do you have to actually be baptized to get into heaven? It's an idea that uh, floats around all kinds of different strains of Christianity and uh, Catholicism, what have you, and um, some people say yes, some people say no. In short, I feel like the answer is no, but we should at least talk about what baptism is. So why do we get baptized, first and foremost? Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, so if we're going to take a look at baptism, now first off, baptism's kind of um, through the course of uh, um, the history of this practice, it's changed in, mm-hmm. in what it was. When it, when it started, this idea of to baptize means to, like, completely submerge, to dunk something. Um, it would be like if you were going to dye your clothes a color. That's how they would do it is they would baptize the clothes into the dye in order to change the, the color of uh, what you were wearing. So um, that, that's kind of where the word itself comes from. Now, as a practice, a religious practice... It starts in Judaism, and it's initially a way for someone who's not Jewish. It's one of the steps that you take if you were a believer, but you were non-Jewish, and you wanted to join that community. You wanted to become Jewish, right? There's certain things you do. you got to get uh, circumcised, right? That was the hard one, <laughs> right? But if you could get past that, then <laughs> baptism was one of those one of those steps, and, and baptism being you know a little bit easier in the process. And later on in it, too, it's just like a ritual cleansing process, mm-hmm. right? So that's where it starts. That's where it comes from. And that's why when um, John the Baptist shows up, it's, it's, um, um, it, it causes such uh, uh, it's, it's controversial mm-hmm. in a sense. Right. Because he, he says he's redefining what baptism is. He'll even claim that. Right? He's like, I baptize you for repentance. If you look at that uh, sequence of his, his kind of sermon that he does um, that we have in, well, we have in um, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and then um, you get a little bit more in John, but it's like after the fact. But he still always comes back to this idea of when he was doing baptism, it wasn't the traditional baptism. It wasn't a baptism for somebody who wants to become Jewish, who isn't already, and who's willing to go through all the stages and steps necessary to become Jewish. John the Baptist was baptizing people who are already Jewish, Mm -hmm. right? So that's why it was controversial. And that's why he has, like, other priests and Pharisees showing up while he's doing it. And, And, you know, he's, like, calling them out, you are a brood of vipers, you know? Um, and, and that's where his whole sermon starts, right? Yeah. But in that course of that sermon, and you look at it, he says repentance three times, that that's, that's the point of his baptism. That was not necessarily connected to the practice of baptism before that, mm-hmm. right? It didn't have to do with repentance. It had to do with you want to be Jewish. Here's one of the steps you take to become ritually clean. And then he changed it to, no, we are baptizing, even though we're already a part of that community, uh, we're recognizing we have failed our part. 
that you uh, that it's a covenant agreement. This idea that we've got a contract, so to speak, with God, that He will be our God, we will be His people. But that looks like a certain thing. As if you're going to be God's people, that will look a certain way. And it's recognizing we blew it. We've blown our part of the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we want to make amends to that, we have to repent that we have, um, by nature of, of our sin, what John the Baptist is saying is that you, you are, you're actually no longer Israelites. He says that God can make Israelites out of stones if he wants to. He can raise up children for, for, from Abraham. That's the terminology that he uses in that sermon. But um, uh, what's going on at that point is he's saying if we want to be um, connected back to God into that relationship that we had, that co- that covenant agreement, then then we've got to do something to make amends for where we broke that agreement. And he's saying that's what the repentance comes in. You, re- you have to repent in order to then become again. So that's what he's saying. We're going to become again part of the Jewish nation as opposed to being foreigners who are trying to become culturally Jewish. He's saying, well, you're already culturally Jewish, but in so much as being Jewish means that you're part of the covenant relationship with God, no, we blew that. Mm-hmm. And we got to fix it. And that's what John the Baptist was saying, you know, out in the wilderness. And um, all the people were coming to him and agreeing, in agreement with, um, oh, yeah, we see that. We see that we have broken this uh, agreement with God, and we want to make that right again, right? So John the Baptist comes in, he changes already what uh, baptism means. Then something else happens with Jesus' baptism, right? That's a different event also, because yeah. Yeah, yeah. how can you repent if this is Jesus? Mm-hmm. What does Jesus have to repent of? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Jesus doesn't have anything to repent of. So um his hidden wife or whatever. Right. In those yeah. weird movies He's, from the nineties <laughs> that made everybody mad. <laughs> yeah, no, he he doesn't have anything to repent of, so he can't very well come to John and and that's part of the discussion too. We have that in scripture. John the Baptist says, Wait a minute, why are you coming to me? Mm-hmm. Right? If anybody has broken the contract with God in this instance, it's me. John the Baptist says, I'm the one that ought to be baptized by you. Mm-hmm. This is backwards, right? And and that's because he was thinking of baptism in terms of baptism being for repentance, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus right. is going to bring a whole new dimension to this. right? So that's why he says, no, it is right that we do this now <laughs> because it will have an effect later essentially is what he's saying. It's like the full measure of what this is going to mean is going to be much more at a later date, right? Identification specifically uh, with who who uh, Jesus is. So um, that's going to change again just in, the, in that short time that we have the ministry of John the Baptist and then the launching of the early church post-Jesus' resurrection, Baptism is going to take on a different meaning at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, still, that idea of repentance, but it's not about um, at all uh, seeing it as this this contractual agreement. Then it becomes about um, really becoming part of a family instead, right? right? That that uh, identifying with um, Jesus Himself, 
right? So that's why Jesus is coming to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is doing this baptism of repentance. And what does Jesus have to repent for? Nothing, right? There's nothing he's guilty of, but he intends to use baptism as a mode for something else. But in order for that to become, for us, a mode for something else, he first has to participate in it. Right. Right? So that's where baptism starts, right? That's that's where we get, you know, the word, what it meant, what it meant in that time. Um, then when John the Baptist comes along, why it was controversial, what he was doing. And, and, and then um, the real question, what it means now for us. Right, that's right. what we're getting into, and specifically, how does that connect into um, salvation and the process of salvation? Um, it being important, but is it absolutely necessary? The way, well, the way I was raised, it was always told to me that it's um, when you accept Jesus into your into your life, and you you know you want Him to lead you, and and things of that nature. You you do this to kind of show you know, publicly that you've made that choice and that decision. That's how it was always conveyed to me. But I found it really interesting to me. Um, there was a point, I think I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I don't think, I don't know if it was somebody in my family or not, but I, I got into a conversation with somebody about it. And they said, um, you have to be baptized in order to get saved and go to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so the question, and I didn't ask the question, but the question was posed, and it was kind of sarcastic, but also pretty valid. So what happens if you're on your deathbed and you haven't been baptized yet? Do they have to go rush you to a water fountain really quick and, you know, yeah, hold you under, well, try to hold you under whatever they can or yeah. splash some, some Sprite on you if that's all you have nearby? Like, what's, what's that look like? Why, you know? Yeah, and that probably comes from more of, well, there are different traditions that come at from different angles. Yeah. Right? The oldest tradition that, that's going to, that you're going to find that in is more of the uh, Roman Catholic in the final rites mm. idea, right? Um, that idea that you want to um, have somebody hear your final confession, I guess, um, because in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have to have confessed your sins to a priest to be absolved by that priest. And if that hasn't happened before you die, then whatever you've done from your last confession to that moment, mm-hmm. you're still held guilty guilty of. Right? Yeah. That, that still applies to you. So it's like every time they can meet with the priest, that's why that's important to them to regularly be meeting with the priest. And I'm I'm not against the practice of confession. It's a it's it's a healthy thing to do. Yeah. But the idea that it's the priest then that and they give you these things that you have to do, the penance process of it. Say these this many prayers for this reason or this 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 is uh the how you make it right sometimes their their reconciliation processes are good counsel mm-hmm. right if it's specifically you've sinned against a person then um um if if the priest is is worth their uh salt at all then they're not going to just send the guy home with okay you say this many hail marys and you're you're done but they're going to be like you also have to fix it yeah fix the broken relationship kind of right? give them some yeah and they give counsel. them exactly uh counsel in that regard that's a good thing but um but the idea that okay now the priest can absolve you of of the sins um, and that's part of the Catholic doctrine 
Yeah. You know, that, that's well, and that's, that's like, their job. So that idea that you have to be um and, and baptism usually in a Catholic sense is done when you're an infant. Well, actually I was gonna bring that up. So why I mean, why baptize an infant? So my thought was, um, so some offshoots of Christianity baptize newborns, mm-hmm. right? Um, while I understand the desire for your child to grow up and follow Jesus, I mean, that is what we're called to do. They still really haven't made that conscious choice yet on their own. Right. How could they? So I find it in my personal opinion, I find it kind of, uh, I don't know, unnecessary. I don't want to say useless, but unnecessary is the term. I, I wouldn't do it, you know, but I know some people do. And even, even outside of Catholic faith, they still do in, yeah. in different denominations of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Presbyterians. Yeah. Presbyterians baptize infants. In fact, that is the only, the, the one single item that I've ever heard taught about by the late, great R.C. Sproul. Mm -hmm. Love him. That is the only point I've ever found that I would, like, maybe not agree with. Yeah. Out of everything he said. And he makes an excellent case for it, right? But I would still say, yeah, no, I don't think he quite makes the case for it. But he's... (laughs) He's, he uh, uh, puts it forth better than anyone else I've heard, right? So let's look at that. What does R.C. Sproul say, have to say about it? Because that's the best, I think, voice to listen to. So he would say baptism replaces um, um, circumcision mm. as a right, right? We circumcise babies or the Jewish uh, when you're bringing the, the, the next generation into the Jewish faith. That's why mm-hmm. it's part of, you know, the, the process of they've got this new baby and, and within, you know, the first week of its life, circumcision is one of the things they do because it's part of the Jewish family that way, right? So that's what he says is that baptism follows suit the same way, right? That we don't have to circumcise anymore, but when we baptize an infant, you're essentially doing the same thing that circumcision did in that you're bringing him into the family of faith with an agreement that um, they understand the child at one day will be responsible for their faith being unique you know, to mm-hmm. them, but that the baptism is um, uh, more of a dedication, right? That's saying that you as a parent— are making a um, and and the community as well, right? So it's the parents, and it's the uh, commitment that the parents are making, and it's also a commitment that that community is making, and that's what circumcision was. Circumcision was and just because you circumcised the baby to be Jewish didn't mean they would behave as they grew up and be Jewish. They might culturally be, they might have the you know because that was also a bloodline. Right, they might be a son of Abraham in the sense of they could track their family line back, but rather behave like a Philistine mm. or an Amorite. You know, they they still want to uh, worship foreign gods and sacrifice to foreign gods and idols and that sort of thing. Right. So, what good was the circumcision then? Yeah. Right? The circumcision can't save them if they're going to turn around and sacrifice to foreign gods. They're not Jewish anymore at that point, right? So that what R.C. Sproul would say is that was still true in Israel. Just because you were circumcised didn't you know guarantee you anything. You still had to, at some point, make that faith and practice your own. 
right? Um, so it was more of about the parents of that child agreeing to raise that kid in that community with those beliefs, with those values, right? And then that community as a whole agreeing to also step in, uh, cooperating with the parents. And, you know, that whole idea of it takes a village, that, that, that they were going to cooperate to help raise that kid you know, with an understanding of God, who he was, and what he expected um, from his people, right? We kind of do that with, um, at least in, in our own church, with uh, baby dedication. Yeah. That that's yeah, essentially yeah. what's happening there, that the parents are saying, we are committing to raise this child in the church, understanding who God is, that won't be a foreign idea to them, right? We're, we're going to raise them with that education in mind. And then the church as a whole saying, we agree and we'll partner with you in so much as seeing that this kid has a healthy um, upbringing here in this community, right? right. That, they, that they will know the word of the Lord in this community, that we will help that happen. So right? one would argue, or, or at least not argue, but one would at least say, like, by baptizing an infant or a newborn, it's the same kind of thing they nowadays. say it's like a baby dedication. I'm just baptizing right? this to say, hey, this is, you know, and then honestly, part there's of a baby dedication. Something and that's, unique about it, I guess. You that's know? that's what um, um, R.C. Sproul would say, that it's, that it's part of that, that process because he connects it very, very intimately to the idea of baptism or uh, to the idea of circumcision, mm -hmm. right? That, that baptism equals what was circumcision, right? Not, and, and I think he does a, a good job at that, but I, I don't know that I land where I agree with him yeah. on that, right? I think circumcision had, it had its place and its time um, so that we understand what it means for us to now dedicate in the same way a child into the faith that his parents have, Right, that that uh, we did baby dedications for my kids, um, and and uh, that uh, we hold that the baptism process was separate from that, because if baptism is instead an identification with Christ, you can't make that decision for the kid. Yeah, right. At that point, that's something that they'd have to do at a later time. And that's why several of those traditions have like a confirmation thing that will happen at about the same age, that kind of um, right on the edge of teenager, mm -hmm. that point when they're starting to be able to understand some more of these abstract ideas and have some time to, to really focus on that idea. They say it's, it's at the point when a, a child is capable of understanding that uh, Santa Claus doesn't exist. <laughs> That when they can understand that Wait, Santa Claus doesn't exist. Wait a minute! Hey, oh, we just blew that up right on the silent planet. Oh, <laughs> just gave that little uh... shocker. Yeah, Neither exactly. is the Easter Bunny. Yeah, <laughs> they say at the point when a, a kid's capable of understanding that concept, um, then they're capable of understanding. But God does exist, mm -hmm. right? And and defend differentiating between the two <laughs> ideas there um, so that they can then accept one truth while holding the other truth at the same time. That's yeah. the issue. So a, a little child who still believes Santa Claus exists and believes God's ex God exists, that can still be like genuine, but what happens at the point when they understand both they can, they can make the proposition and believe it to be true, 
God does exist, though you've never seen him, right? And Santa Claus does not exist, mm-hmm. though you've never seen him. Like they, when, when they're capable of distinguishing those two propositions and affirm both of them to be true, then um, they've reached a point of a, a maturity there to really begin the process of assuming faith of their own right? yeah. or taking on, taking on faith of their own. And that puts them in a different place, right? That puts them closer to um, what we would say baptism is from a Baptist or Southern Baptist. Um, identify that too because there are a lot of different Baptist mm-hmm. groups out there. Yeah. And yeah. um, I don't know that some of like the independent Baptist groups wouldn't say, no, you have to get baptized in order to be saved, right? That that would be part of their doctrine. And it wouldn't be that you have to be baptized as a baby to be saved. It would be that you have to come to a saving um, a decision of your own and be baptized. That you can't just leave it at a, oh, you believe Jesus is who he says he is um, um, and that he was raised from the dead and um, but not get baptized. See, right. They would say that's a that's a, a a place of rebellion, and therefore you don't really believe. But then, what about the guy who's stranded in the desert and all he finds is the Bible? Yeah, and he knows how to read. He reads it right. Yeah, and he gets saved. But there's no water, and he dehydrates and dies. <laughs> <laughs> What's gonna happen to this guy? Yeah, right. He's gonna yeah. go. He's gonna get up there and be like, you know, hey God, I it's really really nice place. I like I love what you've done with the place. You know, the the streets of gold look dope. Yeah, right. Uh, I believe in you and accepted you as my savior. Unfortunately, I did it with only two and a half minutes left to live. Yeah. You know, he's like, sorry, my child, off the hell you go. Yeah, <laughs> like, and they'll say too. <laughs> there's um, instances in Acts where um, someone's profession of faith came immediately followed by their baptism. Right, you've got like the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip comes upon, and uh, he's all that. That's essentially there. It is that's that's your illustration. There's a guy, kind of out in the wilderness, out in the desert, reading from the scriptures. This eunuch, he understands kind of what he's reading, but not completely. And then Philip comes along, and he actually asks him, "Will you explain this to me?" And it's Philip, one of the apostles, someone who lived with Jesus. And this is Acts, so this is after Jesus is, you know, ascended into heaven and the ministry of all the uh, disciples has really taken off, right? So, yeah, Philip explains it to him, and he believes and is immediately baptized, right, on the spot. Mm-hmm. And then there's this, uh, the jailer, too, with um, Paul's in jail, and there's an earthquake, and um, the jailer um, is concerned that all the prisoners have escaped, so he's ready to kill himself. And uh, Paul's like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> We're all still here. Yeah. We're just kind of hanging out. And, and he took them out of the jail, took them to his home, and believed, it says he believed he and his whole family, and they were all baptized. Right? Yeah. So this idea that it follows immediately with but this yeah, They weren't physically baptized. 
It's just using the word baptized, or were no, they actually they were physical? baptized? But they were. But what about in, the guy in the desert, though? Well, the he guy was, <laughs> he was in the wilderness. I don't know. That no, no, they no. Didn't I'm have, talking about my. my oh example. well, your guy doesn't have any water. That's not fair. Exactly <laughs> my point. Exactly that was my whole point. Yeah, no, well, he can do is swim around the sand. Maybe right. find some quicksand that yeah. might be a little moist. No, that won't work. Then will it? No. Um, <laughs> and my my point being that people that will say it's necessary that it has to happen will cite those two examples. Yeah, because in scripture we do have those two examples. And I would say, yeah, it's pretty obvious that you don't wait around if somebody's made a confession of faith, which we also have to connect to all of this. We mm-hmm. haven't talked about that yet. Um, but if someone's made a confession of faith, that it should be then followed by baptism and that it should follow suit fairly quickly. And mm-hmm. I think there's a scriptural um, case to be made for that. Yeah, if someone makes a profession of faith, uh, don't like fart around and n- never happen to get around to the baptism part of it. Yeah. Right. Um, but that happens, you know, I've, I've known people that, that, uh, I believe made their confession of faith at some point, but were never baptized, not necessarily for good reasons. Mm-hmm. In any of those cases, I think they all have a, a lacking of maturity on their part, Yeah, you know, but, um, um, or understanding of the importance of being baptized uh, and, but what it what it what it actually means, right? right? So when Christ is baptized, and of course that's a whole different event, right? That's one of um, one of the very few times we have in Scripture where God speaks Himself, right? Heavens open up, the sky splits, yeah, and there's a voice from heaven identifying who Jesus is, right? He says, "This is my beloved Son." Don't get that often. Right? That didn't happen when I was baptized. <laughs> right? You know, there wasn't any splitting of the sky at that point. And there's an audience there when it happens. People saw that yeah. and heard that. And that's why we have it in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Because there was an audience there that witnessed it happen. Well, it's clearly important right. for a reason. If it had, had, if it had been that the um, um, authors of... Holy Scripture somehow forgot to point that out. It would quickly have been, you know, pointed out to them. Oh no, I was there, and you can't forget the part where the sky opened up and God spoke. Yeah, you got to include that, right? Um, or if somebody uh, uh, wanted to later say, well, the disciples or the authors of Scripture made this up. This didn't actually happen, right? And that's what we see now with you know people that want to try and do this higher biblical criticism. Oh, well, the, the stories of the Bible were written so long after Jesus' life. I'm making fun of them. I'm saying yeah. that facetiously because that's wrong. Yeah. They were written fairly quickly, you know, within uh, the 15 to 30 years at most um, after Jesus' um, crucifixion and resurrection, we have gospels already, yeah. already being like shared and copied at yeah. that point, right? So um, the 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 facetious way that I say, um, people will say, well, no, that wasn't written, and they'll date these Gospels as late as, like, second century or later, you know? Um, ridiculous. But uh, but when they do that, they'll say that, you know, of course, whoever's writing it at that point is making up quite a bit of it, or they're just following this oral tradition, whatever. Yeah. And, and so they're recording the fact that the heavens split and God spoke because someone told them and 
before that someone told that person and someone then you know just if you back it up far enough you know it's just kind of an oral tradition that they tell this story and in the story the heavens split and god spoke but did it really happen right well that's a problem because when the gospels were actually written it was within a the same lifetime of all the people that would have witnessed that. And they would have had a fair then, chance yeah, to say, no. They knew I was there. There wasn't any voice from heaven, right? Exactly. Jump up and protest. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of that that's one of the reasons that they have to try and push these these dates so late also, right? In the gospel uh, record because they they don't want that. They don't want eyewitnesses actually living at the time that could otherwise dispute the fact whether or not God spoke in that instance. That whether what regardless of what a higher critic wants to believe, there were eyewitnesses alive as those gospels were being circulated. So it is good evidence that the heavens split and God's voice actually spoke. And when it did, it identifies who Jesus was. This is before his ministry started. Mm-hmm. You know, he hadn't really done anything miraculous yet. Not on a on the scale he certainly was about to start, right? This is the beginning of his ministry, and it begins with an identification of who he is. And there are several times in Scripture Jesus tries to hide that, right? The, the, that's one of the things when he comes across somebody who's possessed or whatever, the demons will be like, we know who you are, and Jesus will be like, yeah, but you're not going to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. He silences them, yeah, right? It's like, you're going to stop right now. You're not going to—and that's because his ministry was time-sensitive. Yeah. And and if people were um, immediately connecting him, this idea of Messiah and all of that was going to put him in a political position sooner than he was ready for. And as it was— his popularity exploded really fast. So so strategic. So, yeah. If you, if you step back and kind of look yeah. at it, and I find that interesting too, because I mean that's the thing. If you're if you're just like some random guy that's like I'm going to make up this fairy tale and make it, you know twelve people to to follow me around and mm-hmm. and they're all in on it too, it wouldn't really. I mean, it wouldn't be about you know as strategic as it was. Right. You know what I mean? It would be more like, how many people can I convince? It would be more of like a power trip almost. And, and you know, it also follows to suit, too. I'm glad you said that, Thomas, because it also follows to suit, too, that um, there, there are hints in Scripture. Um, that's why when we look back into the Old Testament, we can see all the times Isaiah is talking about this suffering servant and, and uh, just throughout the, the prophets um, how they're kind of weaving this this story together. But if you actually lived as a Jewish person, even as a Pharisee who had the Old Testament memorized, right? Paul was one of those. An old te- he had the whole thing memorized, living as a Pharisee. You wouldn't have connected the dots that way, yeah, right? So when Jesus comes along, it's kind of that 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 whole thing of um, someone wants to say, well, you know, what if somebody just made all this up? It's the kind of story you can't make up. Yeah. Right? That's the problem. Because anybody it's, in their right mind that would actually make something like that up would have completely gone a different way. Well, there are little, yeah, exactly. There are little, little hints through the, the course of Scripture as to, as to what Jesus would be. But even expecting a Messiah at that time, if, if somebody who was, um, um, and there were groups of people who did this, understood the timeline of Daniel, 
from the uh, point of uh, when they were um, freed from exile and how many years that would be, there were people that were actively looking for the Messiah at the time of Jesus because they expected it. There was a, a time frame, and, and that time frame had worked in Jeremiah um, when it said 70 years that they would be, um, or the, the time frame it would be that they'd be in exile, and um, to the year, they were free, yeah. right? It matched. So they're checking, Daniel's confirming that, and then he's giving more time that there would be this amount of time, and then the Messiah would come. So people were expecting the Messiah, not all of them, but there were groups of people out there expecting Messiah. That's why when um, um, the wise men show up and they report to Herod uh, why they've come from the east to meet this new king that's been born, Herod was at one point surprised, but then he was able to go to his people and say, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? You know, this this king, where is he supposed to be born? And they were able to go to the scriptures and say, yep, that we're within the right time frame, and here's the city mm-hmm. that he's supposed to be in. Right. You know? So th- that was, you could find all of these, like, little hints, but you would not have put the whole picture together, right? And and so it's it's kind of that story, when you look at it, it's, it's so, um, um, it, it's one of those wonderful, I think, collisions of two ideas, mm-hmm. um, not really a paradox, but a collision of two ideas. It's a collision of this idea of a story that resonates with all of us, resonates true with all of us. The idea that we've um, somehow failed in the task of being true to our creator and how he has restored us, even though we've broken that contract, we've broken that relationship, right? That resonates with people because we are all in that position. There's something that rings true with that. But at the same time, on the other side, it, you never would have come up with how God goes about doing that. Mm-hmm. The, the sen- the, it's sensational. Yeah. The idea of uh, someone who that, that God himself becomes a person you know, and dwells with humanity and suffers on part of humanity and, you know, takes uh, our place, so to speak, on the cross. Um, so it's that collision of ideas. It's something that, that resonates so, so, so true. And at the same time, you couldn't make that up. Yeah. Right? Um, and I'm not the first one to articulate that idea. In fact, I think it's like G.K. Chesterton did a better job than I <laughs> than I have in his book on um, called Orthodoxy. However, that's one of the points he raises. It's, it's uh, this, this story that's wonderful, um, but no one's imagination could really formulate it yeah. at the same time. So, I always have trouble also thinking about agnostics' view on it. Like it's um, the idea that either they're just stories or somebody just made it up or whatever, but I believe in a higher power that created the universe. Just how I don't understand that you've got so much evidence pointing towards one thing. And you also believe that some divine being could snap its fingers and make everything yet. You can't believe this. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just nonsensical, but anyways, uh, sorry to deviate so much, but back on track, what, what's really needed to actually get into heaven? Good. Yes. Yeah. So the, the, um, passages that we have here, um, there, I mean, there are, there are a lot of them, but I think the the most core one that we can look at here, what do you need? 
if 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 we're gonna land on and I, and I, that's what um, we're essentially landing on that baptism is something that's unique and important, but it's not that like okay now you've got your your pass, you've got your visa to go to heaven. Right. You get your ticket by, you your by ticket. accepting Jesus, but yeah. it wasn't stamped by the conductor, so therefore you yeah. go to hell. Yeah, so we're, we're saying that... <laughs> Second step. It's not necessarily in the sense of this is the only way you're going to make the cut, so to speak. Um, I think the, the passage that does kind of clarify what's necessary is uh, Romans chapter 10, and it's verses 9 and 10. And um, I want to pull those up real quick. Romans... 10, 9 to 10, um, that's going to deal with the idea of um, what we've already alluded to, um, this idea of confession, right? I brought that up, um, that you can have a confession and then immediately that be followed by your baptism. Um, That was the case when um, I had the opportunity both to baptize, well, both my kids, Thomas and Grace, when I did their baptisms, um, I went back to that confession idea and uh, made sure that that was uh, done again in a public setting, right? But Romans 10, 9 to 10, what, what it says specifically is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation, Right, so pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. That I think that's that's the key there. Well, and Confess. I'm, it's also important to note, and this is just me looking. If I'm, if I'm wrong, point it out to me. But Romans 10, the entire chapter doesn't really mention baptism. I don't. No, think. no, no, no. It's not yeah. as I've looked at it, at least. Right. No, it's not about baptism. Um, the the chapter's not, but it well, is about figure, belief. You figure if it was necessary and required, then that would be tucked in into 10 or nine something right right so yeah that it would follow suit yeah yeah it doesn't say in uh romans 10 chapter 9 if you confess with your mouth jesus christ is lord and believe in your heart god raised him from the dead you will be saved and then in 10 oh and you need to be baptized too (laughs) (laughs) right yeah that's that's not the case he goes on in 10 to further develop the idea of what he's stated matter-of-factly in verse 9 Right. I think the important thing to to consider when when looking at all the other stories where people were saved and then and then immediately baptized afterwards it's it's important as Christians that we're not hiding the fact that we're Christians. It's important as Christians for us to let everybody know, hey, I'm a Christian and I believe in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. Yeah. And so I think the baptism there is significant and important that, you know, the sky split for Jesus and God said, "You're my son," right? The same kind of thing happens for us not exactly but we're actually saying we're your children. Yeah, it's publicly identification. Yeah, right. Identifying who who Jesus was at his at his own baptism, and um, uh, how Scripture talks about if you will confess me before men, right? Jesus says, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. Right. Yeah. So the the idea of confessing, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's not necessarily something that's private. That, that is a verbal affirmation, right? Something that needs to be stated, therefore, in public. Yeah. So, um, and we had the tradition in, in the church, I, several of the churches I attended as I grew up that were much more 
like high church Southern Baptist than mm-hmm. Forest Park is where we're at right now tends to be a little bit more um, modern yeah in this regard but um, but these these higher churches would be you know use a lot of liturgy uh, organ and choir in their worship services stained glass all of that stuff yeah right yeah, with, yeah. The, with the higher church thing and I'm not knocking that 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 was the tradition I grew up in and and all of that was fine. Part of that tradition was that the confession of faith was something that was separate from the baptism. However, it kind of happened again when you did the baptism, right? And the the way the confession of faith worked was you actually walked up in front of the church, and um, the pastor did most of the hard work. <laughs> here yeah. is so-and-so. So when I'm like 12 years old, here's Sam. He's been coming here for years. He's been part of our youth group. His um, um, parents have been active members here. And uh, he wanted to come today to announce publicly his confession of faith. Right? So I'm standing in front of everybody. And that notification that here it is, I'm out publicly representing that I identify with Jesus. I am Christian or that I want to be Christian, that I have accepted Jesus, mm-hmm. right? That's that confession part portion of it. So you would confess Jesus Christ is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. The, those were the, the words Right, that was my line at yeah. that point. Right, <laughs> pastor would do the hard part. I have one line: Jesus Christ is Lord. That's all I had to say when I did the baptisms for Thomas and Grace. I said, "You've got one line. You got to remember." And there's a point when I'm going to let you say it, but you just say, "Jesus Christ is Lord." Right. Mm-hmm. So um, you got Thomas, who was like six years old at the time, <laughs> you know, and his cute little voice saying it, and. Uh, Grace much more recently, yeah. But the yeah, same yeah. thing, right? I had them say, say before we do the the actual dipping and coming back up out of the water, right? Which is also symbolic. When I did the baptisms, I was like, you get under the water represents dying. You were saying you have died to yourself. You, you are experiencing this type of death in some mm-hmm. way, or at least symbolically. You're you're representing. That's why we go under the water. As opposed to just sprinkling somebody, you don't want to go to Southern Baptist on hold them down, hold them down till yeah. the bubble stop. Yeah, yeah, well, I've had, I've had, uh, uh, I've heard pastors say, I hold them there for a second, <laughs> right? I keep them down yeah. long to make sure you get them real clean. <laughs> that's right, but that's part of it is that you're you experience some going under the water is is that idea of bur- identifying also with Jesus' death, the yeah. burial, and when you come back up again, you are being raised again, that sense of identifying with the uh, Jesus being raised from the dead. Right. right? So just that act has a lot of significance. We are um, showing visibly a form of that idea of death and burial and, and reaffirming the resurrection as we come back up out of the water, right, and a new creation at that point. So all of that's going on with the actual practice of baptism. But again... Does that mean you're not saved if you haven't been through those stages yet? Well, no, it's you confess with your mouth, yeah. right? Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, right? And and so that's uh the affirmation. That is an affirmation of of uh, a vocal affirmation of Jesus's um, lordship means essentially that you are taking on a king, mm-hmm. right? Cuz we can say things all the time just 
kind of throw things out that you don't actually mean, right? You don't actually believe. Um, we can we can state things. Uh, Honey, uh, I'm gonna take the trash out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually, mean I'm gonna do it. As simple as no, that. I'm just kidding. Or or it could simply be um um uh the the idea of um exhibiting some form of vocal saying I love you to somebody when your behavior doesn't really show that, mm-hmm. right? You think of like the, the domestic abuse situation yeah. here, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Someone's behaving terrible to their wife, and then that's how they make up by being like, oh, well, I love you. Da, da, da. Yeah, but do you really if you're behaving this way, yeah. right? So, so sometimes our words can fall pretty flat for what we believe. So this idea of this confession is that you are not confessing just throwing out a word, Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, anybody could say that. But that confession comes with the understanding of what it means to have a Lord, right? You, you've just agreed to bow down and accept a king. You've placed yourself under the authority of a king at that point. And that's what it's saying, that Jesus is your king. That's what that confession means. So it, it follows suit that you will attempt to be one of his people, one of his disciples, one of his servants, right? That you will follow his commandments. Yeah. All of that is tied up in that simple Jesus Christ is Lord, right? That all of those ideas are tied up in that. And then along with that, you actually believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, right? That that is a historical fact and you affirm it. He was raised from the dead. So that's it. Put those two ideas together that you have accepted a king and it's Jesus and that you believe that king was raised from the dead, that that is a historical fact. That's salvation right there, right? Now, baptism has a lot of good significance and that's why I think it's a good practice for it to be followed immediately with it. Because then you're even further identifying with Jesus and identifying in his death and identifying with that resurrection that you have just confessed, right? So I I think it's great to tie those two together, but it's the confession. Um, Ultimately, according to Paul in Romans chapter 10, by which someone is saved and the baptism then becomes part of our public testimony of who we identify with. But that's not necessarily like part of our salvation, right? Yeah. That's more part of our our sanctifi- sanctification process. There's certain steps we take as we identify with Christ. It starts to change our behavior, right? And that's one of, hopefully, one of the early ones. One of the first steps that you take is to be baptized. Well. Good stuff. Great stuff, actually. Um, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Thank you all so much for listening. As again, I'm, I'm Thomas. And I'm Sam. And this has been the Silent Planet Podcast. Um, once again, we're on Facebook. If you have any questions that you would love to ask us, I know you're out there getting ready to ask a bunch of questions. You can email them to us at thesilentplanetpodcast at gmail.com or send us a Facebook message on facebook.com slash thesilentplanetpodcast. Also, we are on Spotify, Radio Public, Podcasts, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Anchor. 
That's a lot. Well, <laughs> we are everywhere. The two main ones, though, Spotify and Apple Podcasts or yeah. iTunes. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Look us up. Send us uh, to your friends and family if they're into this kind of thing. Um, once again, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week.